Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Allison Gash and Dan Tishner uh, to talk about their new book, Democracy's Child, Young People and the Politics of Control, Leverage, and Agency. This book was published by Oxford University Press in 2022, and it is a really compelling analysis and um, investigation of how we think about young people within our democracy um, and the fact that they are often excluded from the studies of democracy, uh, which is really important um, to understand. So I'm going to ask Allison and Dan to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this project that is, in fact, quite fascinating. Hi, Allison. Hi, Dan. Hey. Thanks for having us, Lily. Yeah, thanks for having. Thanks for having us. This is great. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, who you are, where you are, and how the two of you came to this project together. Okay, so we are both at the University of Oregon, um, and I am a U.S. politics scholar who focuses um, in the area of American political development. I do lots of work on immigration and immigrant rights, um, and also on social movements and presidents and political parties. So political institutions, movements, and and certain areas of public policy. Um, and I could say so much more, but I would, I'm going to hand the baton to Allison. Um, and uh, this is Allison. And I um, focus mostly on uh, studying social policy through the realm of uh, public law, mostly. Um, and focusing quite a bit on uh, gender, uh, race, uh, and then especially with respect to young people with uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, So, you know, my last book focused quite a bit on um, same-sex marriage and same-sex parenting and um, focused a lot on the ways in which young people were uh, deployed um, in those particular uh, debates. And, and both of you are seasoned scholars, um, and and so you you have you know lots of work in in your in your sort of own realms. But this project brought you together, and you've been very excited about it. Um, so I wanted to ask you about you know how how you came together on this project and and how it turned out. Yes, yeah, so this is like one you know, an incredibly happy story of two colleagues who have offices across um, the hall from each other. Um, who who just like are really good friends and love talking about stuff um, that we as political scientists always love chatting about. And there was one day where, I'd say a couple things. One day where we were just talking about how much we thought about children and children's rights from grad school. And so like, I remember for instance, that when I was um, at Brandeis as a graduate student, I had this amazing seminar with Susan Oaken and she became a really terrific mentor for me. And I was thinking about John Rawls and how he didn't talk enough about, about young people and their rights and so forth. But fast forward, um, I think, and Allison, correct me if I'm not remembering this correctly, but um, I remember having a conversation where I was talking to Allison about um, my interviews with a number of undoc- young undocumented immigrant rights activists, so-called dreamers. And, and kind of work I've been doing on on the Dreamer movement and the and the push towards DACA, and saying you know, and part of that was my talking about how those young Dreamers came out, um, and um, courageously put themselves on the line to try to um, 
not just get rights for themselves, but for their, their entire families. And Allison was relating a, a very similar story. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, in both of our sort of separate research arenas, um, ultimately, a lot of the questions that we were trying to answer or a lot of the evidence that we were exploring um, centered around young people in really pivotal ways. And then especially sort of the 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 impact that these various uh, political conflicts were having on young people because they were being asked to sort of, you know, shoulder a lot of the burdens, right? All the, the, the sort of political debates ultimately fell downstream <laughs> onto young people and, 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 you know, rested there. Um, but I, I remember this one specific where I think when it gelled was we were, um, I think we were at a talk and there was some speaker and I can't for the life of me remember what the talk was about, but I remember each of us separately brought up questions about young people, um, as it pertained to this person's, uh, particular research project. And then both of us after the talk went outside of the room and, and, you know, huddled together. We were like, we need to write this book. Like we need to be doing this because no one else is doing this. And we've already identified like three or four different areas, you know, between both of our separate research projects. And then the questions that we had asked in this, uh, in this, in this talk, um, we'd already set, you know, we had already identified like four separate spaces where young people were clearly pivotal and clearly ignored. Um, and so we just realized like, we should do this. We need to be doing this. We need to be writing this book. And, and one thing that shorted it up was then we, you know, took over the whiteboard in the department meeting room and started like, you know, doing, cause we love doing tables. We were doing tables and different categories and so forth. And then realized by the way, that we were using a permanent marker. Oh, yeah. Sharpies. So <laughs> we found yeah. out from a few intrepid graduate students, how to, you know, basically remove the, the evidence of our crime. Well, the, the, the crime turned into a, a fascinating and extremely accessible, well, well-written book. And you, you talk about a number of things that you just mentioned a little bit as well, but certainly you lay out in the book that, first of all, political science doesn't pay a lot of attention to young people. Um, and that oftentimes the youth are considered in a certain sense, um, citizens in waiting so that the, the sort of time that one is a young person, either a child or an adolescent is, is not necessarily something that politics, um, hew, sort of hews in on except as symbolic, um, and as, as, as sort of things that can be thrust forward as a, as sort of image. Can you talk about the absence of any, any real attention to this in political science and it exists in other places and other disciplines, but why it's important that you brought this forward? Sure, we definitely can. Um, I would say first thing is, is, is that it's not that political scientists aren't thinking about young people or, or writing about them. And so, you know, one thing that we do in the book, for instance, is, is, you know, tip our cap at, you know, a pretty vast socialization literature that's been around for a while. Political psychology um, uh, digs into this in, in really some prescient ways. And um, obviously political philosophy, whether you want to talk about Rousseau's Emile or, you know, a whole host of, of material. And then, um, and then also public law will kind of also grapple in, in, in important ways with court cases that deal with kids. So I just want to kind of put that up front that um, uh, 
we, you know, really recognize this earlier work and, and admire it and find it incredibly helpful to us. But yes, Lily, we, we find in, 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 in the kind of ways that um, we're trying to think about young people in politics, which I guess we'll dig into in, in more depth in a, little, in a few moments, and thinking about how they're governed, how they're weaponized or leveraged in our politics, and what their agency looks like, especially in movement politics and other forms of political activism, that could be attended much better, um, we think, by our discipline. Um, and, and so that's what we were, were hoping to kind of address and help and, and, and kind of fill the lacuna that's really de- developed in that area. And, and I would just to add like one, one other thing is, so I think one of the things that we um, both realized was that it's, so when young people are um, f- the focal points of um, political science research, it's, it's often Lily, as you identified, which is, you know, citizens in waiting or, you know, future voters. And so what are the ways in which we can, um, train or develop or understand, right, how young people think now so that when they matter, when they vote, we'll have some understanding of what they may or may not do. Um, and then the other way to, that, that political science thinks about them is in these sort of discrete policy arenas, right? So we'll, we'll focus a lot on, um, right, dreamers, and then we'll focus a lot on the deployment of young people in the abstract, in the context of same-sex marriage or same-sex parenting, or more recently, you know, in the context of, you know, uh, trans, you know, anti-trans and anti-gay school-based policies. Um, but, but no one, no one's really sort of threading the needle across, um, across these different policy arenas to suggest that young people are actually, um, central in almost all, um, political conflicts um, that we think about when we think about, you know, um, American political development and sort of landmark pivotal uh, political moments in American politics. Uh, And that's what we were trying to set out to do is to say, yes, they're really central in these in these particular policy arenas. And that's not happenstance. Right. Like that actually is because of some stuff that we would like to call attention to. And, and in calling attention to um, the stuff, as it were, uh, which is which is a broad sort of category, um, can we start also by talking about who you are classifying as young people? Um, because you 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 do go through in the book and sort of talk about different age groups, um, and that individuals operate to some degree differently in, you know, the zero through seven group or the, you know, the high schooler. Um, so just a little clarity on, on how you came to the sort of understanding, obviously their, you know, census parameters and so forth, but who are we talking about when we're talking about young people? Yes. So let me, let me get this started and then I will, um, um, ask Allison to kind of, um, finish up on it. So the first thing I, that, you know, I think is really critical to, to have in mind is that the temporality of this is, is completely unclear. So even though you may have, you know, um, particular laws, when you can vote at 18, when you can drive at 16, um, uh, when you can drink and so forth are meant to provide, you know, crystal clear, you know, um, um, 
certainty on these kind of questions. Um, the work of scholars like Martha Minow and Elizabeth Cohn and others and a host of others really captures just how murky it is, in fact, to pin down. Um, and in fact, there's a whole politics swirling around when you define someone as a child or, or a, a youth as opposed to an adult. So whether it's criminal sentencing, when it is that, um, you know, someone is given um, emancipation under the law, um, they're just a whole host of these things that are that are not very crystal clear at all. Um, and so going back to that phrase that you, you started with, Lily, about citizens in waiting, um, you know, there's, it would be nice, neat and clean if we knew precisely when young people at least from from the perspective of the polis, instantly graduate from being, you know, in this probationary state to having, you know, amazing rational skills to be full-fledged citizens. When in fact, it depends what category you're talking about, and it gets really, you know, um, in fact, ambiguous in that regard. So whether it's like parental consent for abortion um, and and a variety of other issues, one of the things to be asking is what are the capacities of young people in particular areas? Um, and so, the, and, 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 and when is it that constraints on their freedoms to express themselves or to pursue their vision of the good um, um, is in fact justified? They don't ever want to go to bed, right? You know, what, what age? you said zero to seven, like there's a lot of things where you would expect paternalism as we classically understand it to kick in. That is um, where, adults or other authorities, adult authorities, will impinge on the freedoms of a young person because it's in their best interest. But we have loads of examples of when um, the, the freedoms or the will of young people is constrained when it's not their interest. Think of child labor historically and today, um, but also lots of examples of when um, a young person is demonstrating enormous maturity, intellectual development, and self-determination to be able to do so. And that can be before the age of 18. Um, and and yet they are denied such, like freedom, certain forms of freedom of speech in schools and so forth. So that's where I would start. Yeah. So I, um, you know, we, we quickly realized um, as we were asking ourselves that question, I mean, and we, we bounced back and forth. Um, about like, well, maybe we should stop at high school or, you know, maybe we should, um, you know, sort of move forward uh, into college. Um, you know, my wife is a, is a child psychiatrist and would argue that, you know, people who are in their early 20s are still, you know, sort of developmentally young people. And so we, you know, we, we sort of went with that kind of, you know, uh, we leveraged that expertise and, and, and inched closer to college um, in terms of, some of the stuff that we were looking at for sure. Um, but I think one of the really cool things to come out of the project is um, really exploring how the concept of childhood is in and of itself a location of significant political conflict, right? And the, and the fact that both the constraints of that concept and the benefits of that concept are, um, uh, you know, are sort of doled out in ways that are, you know, really familiar. And if we look at um, the ways in which other sorts of benefits and and, and constraints are doled out, um, you know, by race, by gender, by p- 
politi- policy context. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the first substantive chapter in the book, I think, does a really great job of um, analyzing, you know, how policy context, how demographics um, end up activating and troubling these conceptions of childhood, right, and creating a politics around the very notion of what it means to be a kid uh, and what it means to benefit from that status and what it means to um, be constrained by that status. And if you were going to do a quick survey in, in, in the book of, you know, which young people are being discussed at length in our case studies or our key protagonists when we're describing them. So in our discussion of youth agency and social movements, you know, um, from the civil rights movement to the March in Our Lives, we're talking about ages um, most often in the book from elementary school through teens, sometimes early 20s. But that usually is, is the group we talk about a lot. And then likewise, when we talk about when young people are um, kind of being leveraged in our politics, either kind of being weaponized or are important symbols and so forth. Again, we're talking about from the very youngest ages um, through you know, through, through the early twenties. So that's, that's kind of, you know, it's, it's a big range, but, but that's, that's the set of, of, of folks who we end up focusing on in the book. And then particular, depending on what laws, policies, or struggles we're talking about, um, we may be winnowing in on a particular age group when we do so. And, and so my next question is, and, and you've sort of talked a bit about this, um, but right at the end of the introduction, you talk about the importance of centering children in the study of democratic politics um, as really sort of the investigation of what's going on in this book. Um, and, and to some degree, you know, why this group, this particular group of individuals um, is often seen at the periphery, but is in fact also oftentimes centerpieced, um, but without kind of agency. Uh, and so if you can explain a little bit about why, in particular, in the study of democratic part, uh, politics, there is a need and importance to centering children. Allison, would you like to start us off? Yeah, sure. D- Dan, did you want to? Start? Oh, you want me to? Start? Okay. Yeah. So you know, I think um, one of the main um, arguments or one of the main goals that we had for the for the book was to suggest, especially as political scientists, that um, folks weren't really fully understanding the important um, political moments, the important. Um, our important histories of um, democratic conflicts um, when they were ignoring young people, because so much of the ways in which those political moments played out, played out in the way that they did because young people were centrally located in those spaces, right? And that that they were either being deployed, uh, we talk about being deployed as, as sort of armies, we talk about being deployed as symbols, uh, we talk about um, ultimately young people becoming agents of change. Uh, and we talk a lot about the struggles, right, that that take young people from being leveraged as images to catalyze adults um, and then ultimately to coming to take over a lot of those um, social movements where they were serving adult interests, but ultimately um, took the reins themselves and how right that transition of power was a really like really a cr- critical focal point for 
those kinds of political conflicts. And so um, when we, you know, when really, when we really sat down to think about, you know, these are all of the many areas where young people are such a pivotal location or, and, or such a, a play such a pivotal role in um, each of these conflicts, we realized that they were really shaping the politics of that moment in really important ways that were being completely ignored in political science, such that we really didn't have a full understanding, a full grasp of um, both what was happening in those moments and then the implications of those moments. Right? So, we, so we thought really seriously about how young people are really creating politics in really important ways. Um, and then also at the same time, um, that politics uh, and those policy spaces um, and those policy reforms and the conflicts around policy reforms and the conflicts around young people's role in those reform eras had really uh, important implications for them, right? For young people, for young people in terms of their development, for young people in terms of their capacity to experience democracy in certain kinds of ways, uh, for young people in terms of their you know, transition from subjects of the polity, subjects of policy into agents you know, uh, on their own behalf. And that, and that turns out, especially right now, to have a huge importance because I think our book tells, can tell us a lot about what happened in the midterm elections, right? How, how, Gen, how Gen Z came to be, um, you know, came to play such an important role in this election specifically. I think we have a really uh, important and, and I think highly accurate story to tell about that. And, and just to amplify what Allison was saying, um, the book tries to proceed um, from um, a kind of a standpoint of young people being acted upon um, and being shaped or influenced by our democratic politics or, and, and so the ways that they're governed. And so the extent to which um, they're being protected or subjugated or liberated or abandoned by a set of government policies, by school officials, by parents, and so forth. But then we proceed to thinking about how young people are being used in our democratic politics to serve a variety of different purposes, left, right, center. And then finally, as Allison said, thinking about um, the mobilization and independence of children, young people, um, as political activists in their own right. So those are kind of like the three moves we make throughout the book. And in each of those, I think it ha- it's of an integral importance to the nature of democratic politics. And in that, um, children or young people um, are at times dependent variables and other times independent variables, depending you know, on, you know, in, in our democratic politics, in the sense that, as Allison said, they're being made by our politics and they're also making a distinctive form of democratic politics. And, and so I, I did want to ask you to talk a bit about some of the specific examples that you dive into throughout the book. Um, Dan, you've already made reference um, in your introduction to um, sort of the way that DACA activists um, were at the forefront of the movement towards um, changing immigration status for those who came to the country when they were younger. Um, but you also talk a lot about um, how uh, younger people have been involved with regard to um, gun 
control measures um, as a fascinating example and and way in which you know we we see it but we don't necessarily think about it um, the way that you all have contextualized it. Can you take um, our listeners through a little bit of the um, examples and sort of kind of case studies that you use throughout the book uh, to explain you know this question of leverage, this question of control, this question of agency, um, and how young people at different ages are part of that that sort of um, taxonomy. Let me start with one example. Um, and then, um, but I think is, is an interesting one that moves across the story of leveraging and takes us into agency. Um, and actually I'll, 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 I'll make it, I'll, I'll give you two for the price of one by doing it two quick versions. One is, you know, from the civil rights movement, which I think many of your listeners know well, and it, and it, it starts with the creation of the student nonviolent coordinating Com- committee, um, uh, and, you know, clearly, and originally organized by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, you had adults, kind of elders in the movement who were, who were um, thinking about how to mobilize, you know, these energetic, not just college students, but also high school students and others in the movement. And so, so we get into a story about, about the creation of SNCC. We also talk about um, the critical role of the Children's Crusade um, and, and how um, in, in facing hoses and dogs and so forth, how young people were critical in that because they ran out of adults to put in prison. And also there were a lot of, a lot of adults um, who, who did not want to actually, you know, um, step out. And so they found an incredibly energetic um, and um, resourceful set of, of, of kids who wanted to do it. And in, in that case, for instance, the, the principals of the school were told to lock the gates and the kids literally knocked the gates down. I mean, they like trampled over the gates to get out to um, face Bull Connors, dogs, and and so forth. So that's that is, you know. So example of and by the way, there was a lot of very careful um, wrestling by civil adult civil rights leaders about the moral trade offs of young people who would be, you know, children facing dogs and hoses were going to be far more sympathetic to the general public as this was captured on video than adults doing the same. And so again, an example of kind of the power symbolism of young people. Um, so. Fast forward, at a certain point, SNCC, these, these, these young activists um, said, we actually don't agree with the agenda being set by elders in the movement. And we're going to go into Mississippi and organize people to vote. And those who are you know, um, uh, uh, deeply steeped in the story of the long civil rights movement um, know well you know, how significant the agency that um, emerged um, for SNCC and other youth in the civil rights movement ended up being strategically really crucial and took things in different directions than was expected. Um, so different example, fast forward by several decades and you have the dreamers. And um, so in the nineties, early two thousands, um, you had seasoned immigrant rights lobbyists and leaders who recognized that one of the most sympathetic ways to bring about reform that is to kind of draw lots of appeal with the general public for some kind of relief for, um, for undocumented immigrants living in the country was to find star students, valedictorians and salutatorians and so forth, um, who were, who were, um, undocumented youth, also sports stars, those who were serving, you know, in, um, 
in young military um, training and so forth, you know, kind of get get your your best and brightest, most appealing youth who were undocumented in the country to be the faces of reform. And so they did an excellent job of recruiting people, young people to do this. Um, they helped train them to come join each adult lobbyist in um, advocating for a dreamer legislation um, on the Hill. Um, and these young people came, became very effective as spokespeople also um, on radio shows and TV interviews and so forth. Um, and somewhere along the way, a significant portion of those young undocumented um, uh, uh, kids said, again, like SNCC, we don't agree with the elders. We actually want to take this a different direction. First of all, one of the slogans is, um, um, in essence, for, for Dreamer legislation is, um, that, you know, basically this was not our, this, this was, uh, they were brought here, um, not because of their own fault, but by, but because they were brought, brought along by their parents and, um, their perspective is no, our parents were heroes who brought us here to rescue us from, you know, economic hardship, terror, um, violence and so forth. And moreover, they also wanted to press reform at a time when, um, you know, older, um, uh, immigrant rights folks um, felt like they should compromise and, and go slower. So they pressed the issue. And the last thing I'll say really quickly on this then is that um, during the Obama administration, again, um, the more seasoned immigrant rights activists were saying, look, the Obama administration is on our side. They just can't get this through Congress. And, and Dreamer said, we need to take it to them. Um, and in fact, we need to follow the model of the civil rights movement and create pressure from the outside. And so Obama came, became the deporter in chief. Um, they confronted him during very high publicized um, um, public appearances um, and created all kinds of pressure um, that ultimately was played a significant role in, in the administration going with DACA um, as an executive action that would, that would address their needs. So we have these two different examples, SNCC and, and the Dreamers, um, that captures pretty powerful cases of emergent leadership. Where I adults, wanna, yeah, oh, oh, Sorry. No. Um, yeah, I wanted to add one more um, to those because I think those two are, um, you know, there's there, those two examples are are two of the pillars of uh, what got us started on the project and how we were thinking about not just young people. Um, and the role that they're playing, but also these these sort of three discrete um, uh, ways in which we think young people are functioning um, in the context of these political stories. And so, the, what I, I want to tell just one more story, which which speaks to the way that these things aren't linear, um, at least not in the way that they're laid out in the book. That sometimes um, you start with the leveraging, right, the iconography, and then sometimes that affects. The agency, right, and then that sometimes results in control. And so, um, we're writing, you know, an, an article or a couple articles right now that that now start to um, tinker around with the model that we've created in the book, right, to to show some of these dynamics. Uh, and so, that's about the story of LGBTQ rights. So, um, when you're thinking about um, gay rights and and the kinds of um, you know leveraging, um, you know, instances of agency, and then ultimately. Um, instances of control, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting story. Um, 
because of when, what we talk about, you know, a great example of the leveraging of young people is, you know, it st- starts in the 1970s with Anita Bryant talking about, you know, gay people wanting to recruit young people and that becoming a really powerful tagline, um, you know, for an emerging uh, Christian right coalition or um, Christian coalition and for an emerging sort of obsession with uh, with gay rights and young people. And so you, you see that tagline, right? They have to recruit our kids in like every single solitary decade uh, leading up to today, right? It's it's hard to sort of escape that automatic knee-jerk reaction around um, gay people and children. Um, and But it ends up being deployed in this sort of abstraction of young people um, uh, in order to prevent all sorts of, of progress towards gay rights. So in the 1970s, it's progress towards including um, sexual orientation in non-discrimination measures, um, in same-sex marriage, you know, fast forward, you know, 30 years, it, it becomes included um, in as reasons why we don't want gays to marry, because we don't want it to affect our kids at school. We don't want our kids at school uh, to learn about the possibility of, you know, of being gay or being lesbian or being married. Um, and again, we don't want it to, you know, we don't, we don't want, we don't want the recruitment, right, to be sort of legitimized by, through the legitimization of marriage, right? So that's a textbook example of, uh, the leveraging of this sort of abstract youth, right, as being um, abstract victims to some abstraction of, you know, the predatory gay person, right? And th- it's, this is a pretty textbook, I think, um, deployment of young people. Um, but then what happens is, you know, in the backdrop of that, you know, the sort of um, gay person being painted as the boogeyman and the and the and the sort of perennial um, young victim, right, to that. Um, to that gay predator, you've got young people, right? Who are they themselves, you know, in school being bullied because of this rhetoric, right? Because of this belief that they are predatory, right? Or that, you know, or, or you know, or even self-hating, right? Gay, you know, gay and lesbian young people who are self-hating, who don't want to come out of the closet because they're, they're afraid, right? Both of, right, these narratives being um, deployed against them, but, but then also, you know, internalizing some of them as well. Uh, and so in the 1990s, you know, in the 2000s, right, you see um, young youth, uh, young um, LGBTQ uh, folks in school starting to mobilize, starting to gain agency, and they mobilize around the creation of gay-straight alliances, or what are now called gender sexuality alliances. Uh, they mobilize in terms of, um, you know, demanding rights for trans bathroom access in the, you know, in the, in the sort of, um, 2015, 16, 17 era after we have uh, marriage equality legitimized, right? You see trans young people saying, okay, now, now we're going to step up trans rights because this is, this is something that we need to be doing. And so you see young LGBTQ folks really taking the reins and launching, um, their own kinds of demands, um, in the political sphere, uh, through schools primarily, and really demanding uh, a lot of attention and, and, and ultimately prevailing. I mean, you know, looking at the 1990s, from the 1990s to the early 2000s, the explosion of GSAs in campuses across the country is remarkable, right? And this is a purely youth-led movement um, that, you know, contested with a ton of backlash, but ultimately they prevailed. Um, and so young people become this really powerful catalyst for change in the gay community um, and in the trans community, they become, um, you know, agents of uh, their own um, their own policy reforms. 
And then what happens, right, is you get this, you know, immediate response and this immediate backlash in the form of control. And so what do you see happening now are, you know, the, the, the release of tons of anti-trans bills, you know, particularly those um, aimed not just at bathroom access, but, but, in, but in terms of athletics, right? And you, ha- you see, you know, a, a number of states targeting trans youth, right? Actually targeting them specifically and saying that they can't, you know, they can't play on sports teams that match uh, their gender identity, um, with a specific uh, obsession with trans women um, on on um, cis female uh, sports teams, um, and then you also see the, the the creation of these don't say gay bills, right? The b- bills that you know basically ban you know any books that mention you know sexuality or gender identity, any teachers who want to talk about curriculum that centers on sexuality or gender identity, and then. In some states, you know, uh, laws that say that you have to essentially report to all parents if there is somebody in the classroom who identifies as, as you know, gender fluid or who identifies as gay or lesbian or bisexual or, or pansexual or, you know, what, what, wherever on the spectrum that they sit. So, so you see this sort of like, you know, element of like symbolic deployment of young people, kids taking over and saying, no, you know, not in our name. Uh, and then ultimately this sort of serious backlash against um, the very young people who've, who've, uh, who've exerted some authority. Uh, Dan, uh, go ahead. Lily, I was, just to amplify this, just give me another quick example that you started with, which is, you know, as you noted, we, you know, spend a lot of time with the struggle over, over guns and the March for Our Lives movement. And it also captures very much, you know, this dynamic that Allison was, was sketching about um, youth activism um, mobilization, then having a backlash, especially when it's viewed as having potency. Um, and so, the Parkland kids, for instance, um, uh, that is, you know, the young people um, from Florida who who helped launch this March for Our Lives movement, become, you know, vilified. They become targets um, of, you know, pure fiction. Um, uh, because their message and their youth um, makes them a significant threat. Um, and so we have lots of examples of that as well. Yeah, I was, I was, I was really intrigued, unfortunately, by the research that you all found on this um, in, in part because it does go to the sort of narrative conceptualization of the quote innocence of young people. Um, and then in a, in a context of their political engagement and activization, they are apparently no longer innocent or not allowed to be innocent. Um, can you talk about how, how, and it's, it's, it's narrative, right? It is, it is really taking the, the sort of understanding of young people, um, in the way we craft this idea of childhood and adolescence, um, and then undermining it in terms of, oh, they're active in politics. So that means they're corrupt. Mm-hmm. Another dynamic is, our kids versus their kids. And so um, innocence has a lot to do with which kids uh, one might be talking about. Um, Ideally, it should be all young people. All young people should be viewed as having the same um, uh, interests and welfare at stake. Um, 
but obviously depends mightily on race, gender, class, um, uh, sexuality, and a whole host of other issues um, or, or identities. Um, and so like a, um, a quick example um, of this, um, again, can, can, can go back to the immigration debate um, in which um, young people um, from the early 20th century, when we had this enormous um, uh, and very expensive investigation about the impact of new immigrants from Southern Eastern Europe, um, uh, made key distinctions between innocent and vulnerable kids from Northern and Western Europe facing um, the dangers of young people who are more prone to criminality as claimed by eugenicists and others coming from Southern Eastern Europe. Um, or um, if you look in the contemporary period, a long history from you know Steve King um, to Donald Trump and others who um, basically um, described certain young people from below um, uh, uh, from the Mexican border south as posing significant threats in terms of criminality and 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 drugs and so forth, um, and as such, then um, uh, the innocence of and, and vulnerability of, of kids who were um, coming across the border, who then, um, uh, as part of a family separation policy um, during the Trump administration, become kids in cages. Um, if it framed in a certain way, um, becomes it, it, it is, is meant to become tolerable. Um, uh, and so it, it kind of goes to the heart of our political conflicts as a result. Yeah. I'm going to just add one quick thing to that too, which is um, what you were just talking about, Dan, reminded me of a couple of other um, things in the book that I love, uh, which is, you know, A, that, 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 like you said, you know, thinking about the our kids versus their kids and the ways in which uh, only some kids get to be perceived as innocent. And, and so I think, you know, on the one hand, we're, we're asking you know, why don't all kids get to have that benefit? And on the other hand, we're also saying we're sort of calling BS a little bit on, on even the, the, the fact that that's a thing, right? That, that in fact, um, we, you know, we don't really think about childhood as a, a time of innocence or, or as children as innocence that need to be protected because there's like millions of examples where we don't do that. And we actually work really hard not to do that. Right. And so, um, you know, so in, di- in addition to, you know, thinking about, you know, young people who are othered in very explicit ways, right? I mean, we talk about Emmett Till, right? And the, and the fact that, you know, he was, he was entirely othered and that even in the aftermath of his death, right, his grave ends up being desecrated in really horrible ways, right? Because he continues to be this, um, this person who doesn't get to have childhood innocence, um, even, even after, the, you know, his, the horrible story is exposed, Um but then we also have these like insane moments where uh, young people who were, you know, the victims of horrible crimes or who were, uh, you know, uh, you know, the unwitting participants in, in really violent moments um, are are accused of being liars. <laughs> right. And, and so, like, you know, Sandy Hook is a great example. We talk quite a bit about you know, how they were accused of being actors and, and that they weren't actually real. And, and, you know, we know that to be true because, uh, you know, similar to Emmett Till, their graves have been desecrated in really horrible ways. Um, and then you also go back to, you know, the famous photograph from Kent State, right, of, of the young woman um, who's, who's, you know, standing by uh, the, the student who was shot and how she was also accused of being 
uh, a liar, right? She was accused of being uh, an actress, or she was she was also accused of you know not being a kid or being an adult, right? She her whole life was sort of um, completely upended, right? Because she had the misfortune of being in that space in that moment. Um, and so the kids are not allowed to be innocent when they don't either comport with um, the expectations of certain kinds of um, political communities, and neither are they allowed to be innocent if they are not part of a very specific kind of privileged demographic. And, and the great divide on that actually um, can be seen even in the history of, of childhood itself. And we delve a bit into this in the book about when do, when do we start seeing the use of the phrase childhood or thinking about that. And it's really deeply connected late 19th, early 20th centuries um, with, you know, privileged families who begin to, um, uh, you know, dote on their kids and, you know, provide um, toys and and certain leisure and, and, and certain ways of thinking about the protection and welfare of, of young people for those with children, um, when at the very same time, we, you know, as all of our legal eagles know out there, um, we had cases like Dagenhart, where, you know, the court was saying, yeah, these kids can be contracted for, for harsh labor and textile plants and, and, and um, coal mines and so forth, and to hell with their welfare. Yeah, we were we were actually just talking about Dagenhart in my class on con law uh, last week. So, yep, um, with you on that one. Uh, I I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, a sort of way that you sort of set things up in terms of understanding how children are governed, um, which you mentioned earlier on. But it is it is something that comes into a lot of the analysis in terms of these these. Um, they're constraints most of the time. Um, and, and to some degree, they may come into conflict with a certain amount of agency. Um, but you talk about paternalism, subjugation, membership, and abandonment um, as, as kind of the categories of how they're governed um, and how, how, you know, I constantly keep having this conversation in my political theory class about how my children are my property. Um, and, and so we, we have a regular sort of round of that in, in, in political theory. So if you could talk a little bit about this sort of way that we often categorize young people, not just children, but young people, um, and how that, you know, contributes to also the way that young people become symbols as opposed to actual beings. Absolutely. So there's, there's two variables we think about in this regard to, to create those four um, categories. One is to think about laws, policies, practices that are either in the child's best interest or in someone else's interest. And then the second variable we think about is um, control or intervention versus autonomy for the child or young person. And so when you think about those kind of, you know, um, those binaries, then you end up with these these four groups. So paternalism is, is that classic category, right? Ronald Dworkin and a whole host of others who, you know, provides a good definition, which is that there is control being exercised by the state or other adults on behalf of the child's best interest. And there might be arguments about that, but, but, you know, the intention there is, you know, is, is, is a critical component of it. So it's everything from compulsory education, 
um, to, um, you know, uh, child labor protection, since we did eventually get that, um, going back to the Dagenhart case, um, uh, to, you know, the child health, health insurance program, things like that. Um, and then you get these examples of when um, basically um, there's interventions or controls that have nothing to do with the child's interest. So that gets to your children as property. That gets to Reuben Dagenhart. Um, so there's, you know, child labor, um, uh, efforts, uh, for instance, to get like gay therapy, um, where, you know, a young person is being forced into something, um, that someone else is telling them is in their interest, but we know from all the research and we know from the lived experience that it's, it, it's horrendous. Right. Um, and so then a third category, um, is when there's autonomy granted to the young person, um, and it's potentially in their best interest. So we can think of examples of free speech, um, or religious liberty, or due process rights, and so forth, um, where um, a young person being able to exercise that level of membership, of entitlement, um, is you know can be very powerful. In you know reproductive choice is another example. Driver's licenses. Um, since I have a, a son who's seventeen, he would say that's one of those. Um, and then the final category is when um, basically you have laws and policies, regulations, and so forth. Um, that um, are in the interest of others, not the child's interest, and also engage with kind of autonomy, which is kind of the, uh, an issue of abandonment. Um, and so um, that can be parent-initiated emancipation, um, uh, uh, racial disparities in how, um, uh, uh, in terms of the trying of children as adults, um, and um, and so those, those are some examples. Let me, I would love, and Allison, if, if you could talk about the flip sides of these, yeah. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. yeah. So I think one of the, um, you know, and one of my favorite things about writing this book was like in writing it, we were like, oh my gosh, that's a brilliant point that we just made. Like, and one of those, you know, one of those things was exactly when we, we did this, you know, two by two, um, and, uh, and we, and we were able to look at the membership versus abandonment, um, you know, the sort of flip sides of those things to really see, you know, how this operates. And so um, one of the great examples of membership, um, you know, is is child emancipation, right? So, so when you're looking to be an emancipated minor, um, either because you want to make your own health care choices or, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, a pregnant, a pregnant teen who, um, you know, strangely can't rent, a, you know, a, a home for herself, but has the power to, you know, provide, you know, a whole range of sort of adult decision making on behalf of her, of her unborn, uh, unborn child, or, you know, ultimately when the child is born. Um, and so she's in this like strange place where she can be a parent to her child, but she actually can't ha- make decisions on her own behalf. And so, you know, has to get emancipated so she can actually sign a rental agreement to get a house. Um, and so, right, there's there's a way in which there's a, a version of emancipation that is really about um, young people want to be, uh, you know, want to have membership, right, want to be adults, you know, need to be adults, are asking to be granted uh, that level of autonomy. But the flip side of that, right, is abandonment, which is where <clears throat> young people are being foisted into, right, being forced into a space where essentially the state and the polity is given up on them, right? Um, and so these are young people who, um, you know, the criminal justice system is a great example, right, where you have a larger percentage of um, 
black youth who are ultimately tried as adults um, because, you know, when they're when they're tried as adults, right, the sentencing um, options are much, much different. Uh, and so that's an, a situation where where the state is saying um, we are no longer going to um, protect you right with the benefits of youth. Uh, and so we are foisting you um, not because it, it, it serves your purposes, but because it serves our purposes to not have to treat you like a child. Right. But in, to instead abandon you. Um, and set you free in this uh, sort of unregulated adult space. Uh, and, and what I love about the, the, the flip sides of those is that it really shows, A, that there's a policy context for these things, but that B, there's a, there's a very clear set of disparities, right? That certain kinds of communities and certain kinds of children and, um, and, and, and how those categories of exclusion that we, you know, that we know to be true um, operate um, both among adults, but then also clearly among young people uh, in really interesting and problematic ways. And and so this is a, a really a, a, a important and missing book. So I'm glad that it exists um, to fill in spaces and places where there hasn't been appropriate or su- substantial research, particularly in political science. So I know that the two of you are continuing to work on this topic. Can you talk just a little bit about the direction that some of this research is going? I can get us started. Um, uh, So this wasn't actually supposed to be the first book. Um, We gave you a little bit of a glimpse of our expertise. You know, we actually thought what we would be doing initially is to write a book that was organized around three or four case studies um, in which one could really get a sense for these issues of of control and and leverage and agency, but within particular cases. So, you know, to track um, the long civil rights movement on this, for instance, to dig into the um, the immigration, um, the struggles over immigration politics and, and particularly what the role young people have played both in kind of earlier, you know, so before the dream dreamer movement, but kind of in, in, in earlier periods of, of immigration reform politics um, to dig into the struggle um, uh, surrounding LGBTQIA rights um, and, 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 and um, mobilizations. Um, so we were going to do, basically we were in a case selection phase where we had like six or seven of these and we're just saying, which of these are, do we want to focus in on and, and to do, what we like to do, which is lots of you know careful archival research, um, interviewing, um, uh, looking carefully at the at the legal cases and the narratives and so forth, and and to basically tell those stories, um, and and then you know provide some great analytical punchlines. But as we were on on the way there, we we're like we were looking for a book like Democracy's Child um, that would help set the foundation for us, and we're like wait. At least for us, the concepts and, and theoretical insights that, that we were looking for weren't there. So that's what ended up leading us to write this. So I think um, at least one of the first things we'd like to do is get back uh, to that, that book where we really um, provide some compelling um, case studies um, in this area. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then there's also, um, you know, I think that um, now that we're you know, a couple steps removed from what we did, uh, we can start to see some of the really cool implications of 
setting up the the narrative in this way. And so now we're like, oh, you know, we can actually now tell a story about, you know, the dynamics of moving from, you know, uh, you know, being a symbol of politics to being an agent of your own, you know, uh, you know, political agenda. And that's a cool story, right? Or now we can really tell a story about that those flip sides, right? And the ways in which, um, you know, these, these sort of categories of membership and abandonment are deeply tied to the same kinds of struggles around identity and exclusion um, that we see in a lot of other areas of American politics. And so that's a cool article that we can write too. So we're sort of in this like amazing space where, um, where we created the book that we thought existed, but didn't exist that could allow, allow us to sort of springboard from it. So now that that book is out there, now we're, we're doing the springboarding um, in the form of these articles and then also setting our sights on um, this this book that really does a deeper dive into these particular um, political moments. One other really quick thing I'd mention is, is this project also radicalized us as we were writing. And yeah. that takes a lot because we're both radicals to begin with, yeah. um, but, but on this issue. And, you know, um, we both love and we use in our classes Robert Dahl's work. Um, but, you know, he, we have this quote in our, in our conclusion where he says, no one seriously contends that children should be full members of the demos that governs the state. And in fairness, Dahl has a, you know, kind of very careful um, qualification about why he thinks that. And, and, and it goes back to the whole idea of citizens in waiting and, and you don't want, you know, um, these young members of society who don't have full capacities yet to participate. Um, but for us, we're like, hmm, we're not sure we agree. In fact, we know we don't agree. And, and it goes back to actually one of the things where we started, Lily, where you were asking about, you know, what are like, you know, the crystal clear ages of such and such. And so, um, you know, I'm not sure where I would have stood if you asked me what should be the voting age when I started this project. I probably would have said, well, 18 sounds about right, maybe 17. Um, if we, but I have a much more capacious view of that now than I ever did. And, and um, in all sorts of areas, it makes me question where we limit the agency, particularly the political agency of young people who have demonstrated that oftentimes they're more the adults in the room than the so-called adults. That is, um, uh, they're showing far more wisdom um, and, and concern for the common good than a lot of um, much older um, citizens. That's right. That's right. You know, and, and ultimately are, are having to pay the costs um, in a much more pronounced way. So, you know, it, it sort of doesn't make sense. You know, if they're going to be deployed as in the way that they are, then they should be able to have a voice in those very spaces in which they're deployed. Yes. My students were asking me the other day why it is that in Wisconsin, um, a young person can drink alcohol if their parent buys it for them when they're 16. Um and so on. <laughs> there are tons of examples like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I don't have an answer for you, but. <laughs> but keep asking those questions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I want to thank Dan Tishner and Allison Gash for joining me today to talk about Democracy's Child, Young People, and the Politics of Control, Leverage, and Agency. And this is published by Oxford University Press. I assume one can buy it at the Oxford University Press website. Is there mm -hmm. a brick and mortar store to which you would like to give a shout out? Well, um, 
I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Are there bricks, brick and mortar stores that are selling them? I'm not sure. I know. I know Amazon. Amazon has it for sure. Powell's Powell's has it on um, on their website for sure, and may even have it in their in their stores as well. Yeah. Thank you. We'll direct people to Powell's or yeah. to the Oxford University Press yeah, website. We'll go, go go to Powell's. You <laughs> love Powell's. You can you, you can spend like you know um, yeah. a great day at Powell's anytime. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Allison. Yep.